Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by ChristianBook.com, where you'll find great Christmas gifts for everyone on your list. From books, to Bibles, and music, to videos, toys, and more, Christian Book has everything Christmas for less. It's Wednesday, December 5th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Brian Kluth joins us to discuss the changing state of pastoral salaries. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by Christianity Today Editor-in-Chief and my co-host, Mark Alley. Hey. Good afternoon, Mark. It's practically evening for me since I was up at 3.30 this morning to catch a flight out of New York City to get here. Boo-hoo, travel woes. So, Mary, I may be a little bit incoherent. Uh, Mar- uh, Martha, no, uh, Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if that was actually on purpose. That or was not. on purpose. Okay. I thought of this as I thought it would be a funny way to begin but this then I was segment. Like, Wait, what is he talking about? Mary and Martha? <laughs> All right. I think of you as a biblical character, so there you go. Thank you. Sure. I'm definitely hopefully live a life memorable enough to be included in the Bible. Those standards. There you go. All right, tell us about Brian. Brian Cluth is an author, a speaker, does a lot of things in the area of of various and sundry things of ministry. He is currently national director of the grant-funded program, uh, the NAE Financial Health Initiative, and that's the reason we're having him on today. But he also speaks from personal experience. He was a pastor of First Evangelical Free Church in Colorado Springs for 10 years, so we're looking forward to having his wisdom on the show. Welcome, Brian. Hey, great to be with you and your listeners, and we really want to encourage people today. So uh, we look forward to answering questions and giving them some uh, wisdom and some insights that can help them in their church situation. Brian, are you still based in Colorado Springs? I am in Denver, Colorado now, in a place called Lookout Mountain, just outside of uh, the edge of Denver. It's called Golden, Colorado. That's where I'm at. And what's your favorite outdoor thing to do in Colorado? Well, I love to ski and love to hike. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. I just love living here. It's a great Great, great place to live. I'm very fortunate. Wow. Sounds awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm looking forward to discussing this topic. I want to introduce what we're talking about today by reading the beginning of an article we published last week on our website. We will link to it as usual in the show notes. And it's called The Pastor's Pay in 2019 and Beyond. So I'm just going to read a little bit of the beginning of this article. Dan Navarra, a pastor at Monte Vista Chapel in Turlock, California, lives in a high cost of living area, and his church, like many, is feeling the pinch of rising costs. Four years ago, the church dropped family medical insurance. Thankfully, his children qualify for California's Medicaid program for low-income families. Out of financial necessity, Navarra's spouse also works, and she's not alone. All of the wives of pastors on staff have jobs, said Navarra, all of them. One question lingers in the mind of Navarra, as he puts it. Is nonprofit, pastoral, full-time, exempt work going to be viable for me and my family? So what is the answer to Navarra's question? What does the answer to this question reveal about the health of Christianity in the United States in 2019? What do pastors, ministry leaders, and those who work for Christian nonprofits, like us, need to be cognizant of in the coming decades? We will get into all of this this week on Quick to Listen. So much to kind of like unpack here and talk about. And I think, Brian, maybe you can just give us a sense right now of what we do know about the current state of salaries and American pastors and how we pay them and so forth. Give us some like background details. Obviously, we kind of introduced this through an anecdote, but is Dan Navarro's situation unique or... Is this kind of increasingly becoming common? His situation is not unique. Uh, We've done some research with over 4,000 pastors, uh, senior pastors, and from 18 different denominational groups. 
in one third of them have indicated they have considered leaving the ministry because of financial pressures. And two thirds of them know of somebody that has left the ministry because of financial pressures. So this is very, very real. Uh, 90% of pastors do feel uh, some level of financial stress in their life, and one third of them feel quite a bit of stress uh, in their financial lives. Uh, when you really look at the numbers, uh, there's real reasons for this. 50% of pastors in America have an income of 50000 or less from the church. So that's not a lot of money. Uh, a lot of them have advanced degrees, but you know their income package with salary and housing is 50000 or less for half of them. 60% uh, do not receive health insurance from the church. Another 62% don't receive retirement funds from the church. Uh, two-thirds of the Pastors that we interviewed, that we surveyed, uh, their spouses worked. One third of the pastors had a second job. So financial pressures are very real in the life of many pastors in America, and sometimes even slightly the majority of pastors in America certainly have financial challenges in these days and this time during this time. So I guess inherent kind of in the this conversation that we're having is this idea of having pastors working full time. Is that a common experience for American churches? Do most American churches have full-time pastors? Yeah, that is more the norm. I mean, bivocational is certainly something that is is happening across America, especially in ethnic churches. You'll have more, uh, you know, more people that are bivocational. But there are a lot of pastors that are full-time, but they're not fully paid. So they're really dependent, typically, on again a spouse working or a spouse's, uh, you know, re- retirement benefits or or their healthcare benefits. So there's a lot of a lot of family dynamics that go on in the lives of, of pastoral families to just kind of make it make it all work. Is that something that was kind of taken for granted for a while that being a pastor was going to be you were able to have a family on a single income? I was a pastor from uh, 1979 to 89, but I was in the Presbyterian Church, which. Uh, has a better track record of taking care of its pastors with in terms of health insurance and retirement. It actually had minimum salary expectation that each church couldn't couldn't simply couldn't hire a pastor unless they paid the the minimum. Yeah, it was assumed that that should be able to support a family at the time. Okay. So that that would be my experience in that regard. That was the the norm for many 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 years. I think that norm has changed in recent years. So I was a pastor in for ten years uh, in the nineties. And I took a uh, $70,000 pay cut to become a pastor. Uh, I was a CEO of a nonprofit. Uh, but here's what was really cool about that experience. So my, so my salary basically went from like one twenty to, to 50000 when I became a pastor. But my congregation loved me really well. And what, what I mean by that is, is like, you know, a mechanic took care of my car and a dentist took care of my family's teeth and... And my wife had cancer. They, my, they gave us food and gift cards, and people let us use their timeshare. Some let us use their RV. And, and when, a, when a congregation loves you well and takes care of you with their with the things that they have, you can quote live on a, less of a salary because all those things you would normally be paying for. And so I found when I you know when I dropped to from one twenty to to fifty thousand that I didn't I didn't feel the hit. Uh, my wife only, uh, she didn't work most of those years, and uh, she did do a little bit of work uh, at a Christian school. She part, taught uh, part-time foreign languages at a Christian school. So even though we didn't make a lot of money, we never felt impoverished or challenged. We felt like we had enough. The thing that uh, surprised my budget when I became a journalist, moved out to Illinois, made the same amount of money as I did as a pastor was that I had to pay for all my vacations. <laughs> because in in my church people were always offering us to go you know go to stay in their their beach home or whatever or inviting us on a trip with them and paying for everything. I don't want to pretend like the salary issue isn't a serious one that needs to be taken seriously, but I think people ought to recognize you know in a healthy pastoral situation a little smaller salary doesn't hurt, but that isn't that isn't always the case of uh, the local church. Yeah, and, and that's true. And actually, the NAE initiative you mentioned that I'm part of, we're actually developing a, a nationwide media campaign this year. It's called Bless Your Pastor. 
and it'll include uh, free training for board, church boards, using a, a particular brochure we wrote on 50 ways to love your pastor well year-round, uh, and it's for the pastor and the church staff. And, and we want to do that. We want to kind of empower congregations and church boards to think the answer is not always the, the paycheck, because the truth is a lot of churches have limited dollars. Another number, another number from our statistics is 50% of churches have annual budgets of under $125,000. Okay, so if you have a $125,000 budget and you're trying to give to missions and take care of the building and take care of the youth and have a part-time secretary and pay the pastor, there's just not enough dollars to go around. So when churches can understand that in addition to, yeah, the paycheck and the housing allowance and all of that, you know, there's so many things that a congregation can do to help stretch those resources. And I, and I tell pastors, it'll never be about your paycheck, but it will be about God's provision. And God's provisions are much, much bigger and much greater and broader than simply a paycheck. Paycheck oftentimes will not be enough, but but the provisions of God are really quite wonderful. Yeah, and I think that applies to, I don't know, uh, 75% of the pastor's salary. But I'm not sure, and I'd like to get your reaction to this, uh, Brian, is I'm not sure how that applies to health care and retirement, because congregations, if they if they there's nothing they can do about that except pay the pastor's premiums in the, each case. There's nothing they can trade off with that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this gets into every church has kind of its own unique polity, policies, practices. So you mentioned you were the Presbyterian denomination, and they have very clear guidelines on what all that looks like. Uh, I'm working with the Free Methodists on this financial health effort, and they have very clear guidelines. So every Free Methodist pastor, when they come to their retirement years, they're probably going to do better financially than they did when they were a pastor. <laughs> so so when there's those things in place. But a lot of times you have other denominations, they really don't provide specific guidelines or, or don't have things that have to be that are mandated. And that's where the, the, uh, there's much more of a slippery slope. And the challenge for the pastor of that kind of church where the, the denomination doesn't give any guidelines or requirements, or maybe it's an independent church, how does that pastor advocate for those things? It's a little harder. But, but some of the work, great work that CT is doing with the, you know, their clergy compensation research and their materials really giving giving churches and church boards valuable information that really govern and guide their decision making. I'm part of a new church plant. Uh, I'm an elder on my my uh, this three old church plant, and so we're reviewing our staff salaries. And I pulled out the CT materials, and I gave that you know to our church leadership and pastor, and said, "This is what we want to be working with. We don't want to work with you know what." random people happen to think is fair, you really want to, you know, get something from your denomination. And if that's not possible, you really want to pull in quality research and information that says, no, this is appropriate for retirement. This is appropriate for health care. This is appropriate for disability and life insurance, all those kinds of things, you know, professional uh, uh, education, uh, those kind of, that kind of research is really, really valuable to any pastor or any church leadership board. Yeah, you're specifically talking, of course, about our website, newly newly started website, churchsalary.com, in which they've done an incredible job of also cross-linking this to uh, city, urban, rural, uh, and all other sorts of factors. So you can get a pretty fair analysis of what other pastors in other areas similar to yours are making. I remember when I was a pastor for Presbyterians and the type of community I was in, the ballpark figure was, what does a principal of a junior high school make? That's probably what our pastor should make. Now, whether that was fair or not, I don't know, but it was at least, it was something. But this churchsalary.com goes a lot deeper and actually gives you much better figures. Yeah, and, and that's just really, really valuable. And, and there is like the cost of living, you know, effect is huge. Uh, I live in Denver. Uh, Denver, last year, we just crossed the average home is now was $505,000, Okay. $505,000. I, I was in Huntington, Indiana, and I was telling someone that. And they said, $500,000. He said, well, I think you can buy for sure the biggest house in town. <laughs> and if not that, you might be able to buy the whole town. <laughs> exactly. 
But then you have to live in Indiana. Hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> Lots of email from our Indiana readers. <laughs> Way to go, Morgan. I love Indiana anyway. Well, hey, I'm, I'm married to a gal from Indiana. I love Indiana. Oh, my gosh, guys. Stop it. You live in Colorado, Brian. <laughs> we know how you really feel. <laughs> I love to visit Indiana. <laughs> okay, well, I want to talk about denominations for a second. From what you guys are saying, it sounds like denominations have often played a really critical role at standardizing how much pastors are supposed to get paid. Is that true for other church staff? At least, okay, I just want to give full disclosure here. Growing up, I like went to a church where we had a lot of people on staff. Are denominations saying, here's how many people you can have on staff, here's how much you should pay every single one of them from your church ministries director to your junior high pastor, to your senior pastor, to this other person? So with NAE, we serve 40 denominations, all right? And I would say the norm, from what I understand, some provide guidance, a few provide required guidelines, and many uh, provide very little information at all on, on any of that, on, on any of those positions. Now, Again, with, with, with the website you referred to, and there's some other resources out in, you know, in the marketplace, uh, you can get down to, you know, communications director, you know, uh, small groups director, church staff, a graphic designer. There are some, some things out there. And again, I'm not sure if, if the work CT has been doing covers some of that on that website. But there are things out there that you can get that information. And then, again, you've really got to be sensitive to the geographical issues because, uh, you know, San Francisco, Denver, New York City, major cities are going to have a completely different dynamic uh, than smaller towns. And here's another statistic, though, that I want to just touch on from our research. 82% of pastors uh, serve in rural or small town and cities. 82% of pastors serve in either rural areas or small towns and cities. So again, you have a very very different dynamic, especially when it comes to housing, if you're in a major big city or even just a good-sized city versus a rural town and small city. Hey, this is Morgan from Quick to Listen. This episode of Quick to Listen is sponsored in part by Start Church, a company for pastors and ministry leaders that helps get started the right way. And today I'm speaking with Nathan Camp. He's the VP of Strategy at Start Church. Nathan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Nathan, I want to talk to you about the mountain of paperwork that new churches often have to sort through. Tell me what that looks like. You know, a lot of people are called to preach and teach and make disciples, but then they go to start a church and they realize, man, in our country, there's all these legal rules that they have to follow. First off, most people should incorporate. In fact, 100% of the churches we're starting right now are choosing to incorporate, gives them that limited legal liability, helps protect their ministry. It's just great. But nobody's ever done that before. You know, this is the first corporation they ever started was their own church or ministry. Then there's the EIN number, making sure that they're opening a bank account in the name of the church. The bylaws, you know, other than the scriptures, this is probably the most important document in your ministry. Some policies and procedures to protect your board. And then, of course, applying for the tax exempt status, the 501c3. Most of the time, how they feel is, oh, my gosh, you know, I never even considered all of those steps. I just want to preach Jesus. So they can be very overwhelmed. You can learn more about Start Church at startchurch.com. Why do you suppose uh, so many uh, denominations, church networks are reluctant to weigh in on this on behalf of their pastors? It just strikes me as this is where the rubber meets the road every week for a pastor in a church, and yet they don't even they haven't even addressed it, even though some of them have been around for hundreds of years. What do you think is going on there? Well, some of it again, as I as I work with different denominations, there's completely different dynamics as far as what kind of information they that they're in their history that they've been able to get from their denominations. So I have one particular denomination I'm working with, uh, they have about 1,200 churches. This particular denomination has the contact for every church treasurer in their denomination. And they, they pull regular reports from that church treasurer. There's other denominations I'm aware of. They're not even sure they have an accurate list of churches 
in pastors. Oh, oh wow. Much less okay. The church chairman and the church treasurer. And in those settings, if you're asking for con- you know, the financial details, there may be a history of a real reluctance of providing that information. So there re- it's really across the board, and a lot of it has to do with the history of that denomination. And are they, you know, is their leadership structure advisory, uh, or, or are they authoritative? I mean, there's all kinds of dynamics that play into that, but some just do not have a lot of good data from their people. And I know, certainly anecdotally, over years of ministry experience, being in a citywide pastoral, uh, you know, gatherings of uh, with pastors of other denominations, there has been a widespread feeling among many Christians and churches that pastors should make very much money. They're in it for the Lord. And they seem to be obtuse to the idea that a pastor has uh, family responsibilities, responsibilities to children. Uh, responsibilities to uh, take care of them for finances as well. I mean, health care as well as future college. Uh, so that's a really interesting dynamic to try to unwind, to help people um, see the pastor as just, an, uh, if nothing else, just another parishioner who needs to have uh, his resources taken care of. Yeah, and that's really Lily Endowment. With their, I mean, they've been giving millions of dollars in recent years to groups like NAE and denominations and CT to really try to address this, to say, this this has to be a talked about issue. We can't just continue to sweep it under the rug. You know, there's there's many don't have retirement funds. Uh, there's medical bills that people are experiencing. Uh, many young pastors are coming in with significant student loan loan debt. And so this, this can no longer just be ignored. And then, you know, I think we're going to get into it some, but you know, even the housing allowance is an issue. Uh, there's some other challenges going on uh, with charitable giving, I think, in America. I think the next couple of years we're going to be in for some very uh, eye-opening times in the church and in the nonprofit world uh, as the new tax uh, tax changes hit. And so uh, there's a lot of things that are going to really affect churches and pastors and nonprofits and ministries in the next several years. Brian, we're definitely going to get into this. I want to ask a couple more questions on this wavelength first before we move on, though. One of them, you know, Mark was speaking a couple minutes ago about whether or not to standardize the salary requirements for non-clergy. And that just really made me think about the fact that a lot of the non-pastoral roles that I've seen in churches tend to be occupied by women. And in some ways, I, I don't want to say there's no distinction between them, but I've definitely seen places where you know, once someone ends up working in junior high or high school, they've been given the title of pastor. Otherwise, you have someone who's like a children's ministry director. And I don't know in your experience how churches try to just make sure that women are in, in the roles that the churches are theologically feel permitted to offer them are also being compensated fairly. I mean, yeah, that's an important issue that every church you know needs to be sensitive to and, and respectful of the people that are serving on their staff, whether they're men or women. But I, I think I think in broad brush strokes, what we're recognizing in this podcast is that uh, there are real critical pay issues for people in church and really all, all levels and all genders uh, certainly uh, needs to be looked at. So, okay, so we talked about denominations, but many people, including me, have lots of experience in non-denominational churches. How does pay generally look like there? Are people really just making it up as they go along? Do you have research on this as well? So our specific research is all with denominational partners, but my background has been as independent evangelical churches. And so in those settings, and again, I was you know an elder board and a church chairman, and we, we did pick up a little bit on uh, that idea that was mentioned earlier with Mark, you know, what is the, uh, you know, uh, middle school principal ma- making? Uh, and that was kind of this just uh, reality check for we should be somewhere in that ballpark. And the challenges you have with, with pay is when it gets to the congregational level, uh, let's just say you're paying someone 50000 Someone would look at that and go, oh, my goodness, that is not enough. And then somebody else would look at that and go, 50000 that's a lot of money. So you, you also have to be careful, even when you're dealing with this on a church level, it really needs to be on a church board level, 
at our church, we just had a church membership meeting on Sunday, and we showed payroll as a percentage of the total budget, but we did not break out the individual numbers for everybody in the congregation because you would have some people appalled at how little we're paying and some people shocked at how much we're paying. And I actually felt we were actually paying very fair uh, based on CT research uh, with our church staff, men and women. So you have the challenge of where does where does it get discussed and how do you how do you do it? But every but it really always comes down to the, to a church board. There's somebody in a church board context that's making these decisions. And again, sometimes they do it with strong encouragement or requirements from the denomination, or other times they do not. But then they need to they need to look at research to help them in their decision making. In another setting, another type of denomination, everything is wide open and is part of the public conversation. In the Presbyterian Church, uh, yeah, all those the number, not just the percentages, but the numbers are are in fact public information. In fact, the uh, that are gone over at the annual review when often the pastor's salary is approved by the congregation. <laughs> so everybody knows and everybody has an opinion. Everybody listening to us has their own experience. <laughs> what that looks like exactly, yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly of whatever they do. That denominational differences of polity and practice and procedure. I would think part of that's the American culture of one salary is a matter of, is private, is considered a private matter. Now that's not true on a lot of professions. For example, any government profession, those all those numbers, of course, are public. Well, and your salary is public too. I could just look up a nine ninety and if you're one of the top, yeah, top five, anybody can find that. Up. But other than that, nobody, yeah, it's a, it's just assumed you'll everyone will keep that privately and. I debate back and forth whether that's healthy or not. Uh, in some ways, I can see they can lessen envy and uh, jealousy. Uh, on the other hand, I still am a Presbyterian. I thought it was a good idea that all those numbers were out there. When I was in the church in Mexico City, which had both missionaries and multinational heads of multinational corporations, and after one meeting, like you say, uh, one of the missionaries came up to me and said, it's, it's a disgrace the amount of money you're making as a Christian minister. He literally lectured me in, in the coffee area. And then one of the businessmen came in and said, it's a disgrace what we're paying you. It's so low. <laughs> <laughs> Same day. All right, Brian, let's go back to these threats. Dun, dun, dun. To the pastor's salary, specifically American pastor's salaries. What's what's happening? I think I think a lot of us know that have been following some of the tax law changes. But remind us. Ministers are able to take the amount of their house, all the housing costs related to it, and deduct that from their total pay, and that amount is not taxable. So somebody, let's say, gets a $75,000 compensation package, and they get their house, all their costs with their house adds up to $40,000. They're only taxed at a $35,000 rate. So the, the impact of that is huge on that person's cash flow. Uh, and they're, what they have to pay in taxes and all of that. So that's so that's in the federal court system, and that's kind of moving along. But at the moment, you know, if you have good guys and bad guys, the bad guys are winning because the move is to remove that. And if that was removed, and it isn't just Christian pastors, it's all clergy of all stripes, all faith groups. And if that would go away, it would have the single greatest negative impact on people in pastoral ministry that they've ever experienced. But it's been in place for a long, long, long time in America that ministers have been granted this. And so now in our more and more secular society, there's a move to try to remove anything religious uh, from from our society. And this is one of those moves. I mean, on the one hand, on the, on the full face of it, it does seem kind of strange and un, unfair in a in supposedly secular culture. Especially because it's not like all nonprofit leaders. Right. But it, the tradition in the United States has been, it's been understood at all levels that the moral health of a nation, it's vital for a democracy to have, have that type of moral health. And the main person responsible for teaching and preaching about that has been the pastor, and it has been the tradition that pastors are lower paid. So in order to keep encouraging people to go into the ministry and it, so they won't be completely destitute, the government instituted uh, this sort of double break in order to help them financially Okay. to make it possible. So, 
and we have written some articles and we will probably do as the as that case moves along we'll probably do some more but most people don't realize literally the billions of dollars of social service that local churches provide communities so uh that would be one strong argument for keeping it now what you've just mentioned is another aspect is that if it's if it in a secular society if it applies to pastors should it also not apply to to heads of nonprofits and that might be an argument to be made for that yeah sounds like a galley editorial all right we will come back to that like i said probably do you want me to start different. talking about it right now <laughs> <laughs> in your own head and this is the unknown piece is okay so for a number of years there's been the fear that the government would take away the charitable tax deduction they have not done that specifically. But what they have done practically is they've taken away the motivation for the charitable tax deduction. Uh, In the past, 70% of Christians would itemize their charitable tax deductions. My understanding of the current numbers are this year with the new tax policies in place, only 5% of Christians and and secular people and uh, Americans will be able to itemize their charitable deductions. So you've now taken away the motivation for, example, year-end giving. In America, 40% of all giving in the entire 12 months, 40% of the entire year's giving has always occurred between Thanksgiving Day and New Year's Eve Day. The last 40 days of the year, 40% of all monies are are given because there was this natural encouragement of get it done by December 31st. That is now gone for 95% of Americans. I think what's going to happen is we're going to a lot of nonprofits and ministries and churches that kind of always counted on the year-end bump. They're probably still going to get some of that this year, but not as much as they've gotten. And they're going to get into January and go, oh my goodness, what just happened? Uh, Or they're going to notice a change. But then in April, when people are doing their taxes, they're going to suddenly notice that none of their charitable giving had any benefit to them from a tax purpose. And so next year, you completely wiped out the motivation for year-end giving. So people are going to have to be taught giving and generosity, not with a tax mentality, but as an issue of spiritual formation, spiritual priorities, honoring God in your life. And for most Christians, that doesn't exist right now. So there's going to have to be a huge step up by churches to really engage their congregations in teaching generosity as a spiritual value in the years to come, because the tax reasons have literally just the bottoms dropped out. You know, I, I wanted to add two things. One, we did report on the standard deduction changing, which is what you're talking about right now. And I got there were there's plenty of comments on social media from people that were saying, like, we already give because we're generous. Isn't what Christians are supposed to do anyway, which, you know, is obviously what we hope to be true and what we fear is not actually true. And that does make me wonder, too, Americans often really like to brag that they are the most generous country in the world. And I am curious if that will <laughs> something that they will still be able to brag about, which is also kind of like, why should you brag about that? Unclear. Um, <laughs> if they will still be able to brag about that come 2020, um, which is what you're suggesting. Yep. And I'm not sure on the bragging side of it. I don't know who's doing the bragging because here's the here's the Barna numbers. Fifty percent of Christians give zero to fifty dollars per year. Twenty percent of Christians give fifty to five hundred, and thirty percent of Christians give over five hundred. So we are living in a time in America where the vast majority of Christians are really very nominal or non-givers. And that's to any type of nonprofit or that's to their church? Uh, it was called a millennial research. It was, I don't know if they broke it out that way. Okay. I think it was their giving in America, Christian okay. giving in America. So I think it's broad based. Wow. So in America right now, uh, Christians give less than they did by way of percentage of income than they did during the Great Depression. The Great Depression was 3.2% of their income. And currently it's down, depending on the denominational groups, anywhere into the one to low two percents. Uh, of giving uh, in America, their charitable giving. Yeah, that that accords with my memory. I think we were pegging it at 2.75 when I was a pastor, was the typical. Yeah, right. And it's been going down. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. 
You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. All right, so now that we have some really great news for everybody, <laughs> time to get into life advice. Brian, okay, so plenty, I'm sure, of our listeners to this podcast are people that are thinking, maybe I want to do ministry sometime. All right, let's be honest. Does it make sense for them to pursue an MDiv or another seminary degree? Financially. Yeah. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> God may be calling you to do this. Do no, not listen I'm just to saying that the MDiv degree is valuable. Whether you get, all I'm saying is yeah. sure. But yes, heed what Mark is saying. I'm I'm just really curious, right? Like it it does seem like there was an era. Some of you may have lived through it, in which if you went to seminary or if you had an MDiv degree, you could count on your pastoral salary to be something that you could pay back your loans with in a way that didn't burden your family and you. Some denominations, they, they all their clergy go to go to school for free, yeah. Okay. Back in the day. I don't know if that's still true, but yeah. So do we live in, a, in an environment today where that is something that you still might encourage people to do that from a financial standpoint? Well, from a financial standpoint, you've got to kind of grapple with that from a theological standpoint first. Does it make sense, financial sense, to intentionally go into ministry and think your financial needs will always be met. So a couple of thoughts. Uh, one, Matthew 6.33 has not changed. So seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, what things, things necessary for life and service shall be added unto you. So God is, has been, is, and will always be in the, in the business of providing for his servants. Okay. So that's one big theological you know, anchor for me is is it is about calling. You know, it's not about, hey, what's the greatest career path for me? Oh, I'll go become a minister. I'll become rich. No, that's not. If, if your goal is to become rich financially, no, that's not the great, that's not the great career path. If the goal is to be rich in your service to God and service to others, absolutely. Wonderful path of service. So you, so you have some of those, those dynamics that are, that are going on. But it is about a call. And it is, you know, even myself, I got called to be a senior pastor when I was 45 years old. You know, I was a nonprofit CEO and I shared the story. You know, 120,000 went down to 50,000. Was it financially on the surface? Did it appear financially wise to do that? No, not financially wise. But it wasn't about financial wisdom. It was about a very clear call of God on my life to enter into church pastoral ministry. And I did that with joy for 10 years, and my, and my needs in those 10 years were met. Even though I had a wife with eight years of cancer who ultimately went to home to heaven, uh, you know, in 2010, and with all the bills paid. Uh, so, so all my needs were always met, but my paycheck greatly decreased. So I would always tell anybody looking at ministry, do what God's calling you to do. Take the steps you need to take. You know, that's education, education. I've got a son who's who's at Moody right now, and I'm encouraging him to go to, uh, you know, go to get his master's degree. Uh, and uh, I'm encouraging him to go to Uganda. He can get it for $5,000 instead of Denver Seminary for $60,000. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I actually go to Uganda every year, and so that's why I know that number. And, and we're sponsoring somebody for their master's in Uganda right now. And it's five thousand dollars, and it's a it's an accredited Christian university. But so there are challenges. Yes, go get your master's, but think carefully how you want to do that. I want to know what we know currently about bivocational ministry, and if that's something that either of you thinks is going to 
increase or become mainstream in the next coming decades? You know, almost every decade I hear, I read a story in uh, some pastoral magazine or another that says bivocational ministry is is the way to the future. Certainly it was back in my era that was being said. Uh, I've not seen it come to fruition, and I think there's some practical reasons for it. I mean, a lot of people have it uh, idealized that the, the pastor should be a working person like the congregation, and that keeps him or her in touch with what the realities of working life. Uh, but the fact is, when you are a pastor, you get, you get really excited and challenged by ministry and ministry opportunities. And after a while, what you find is it just becomes increasingly frustrating to have to split your time between these two these two worlds. And so bivocational ministry of anything is a transitional era in my experience. And that makes sense from the early church on. I mean, the early church, in fact, discouraged uh, their, uh, at the time they were priests uh, from taking any jobs outside of the church's uh, ministry, precisely because it did find that these, these uh, men, their attention was divided. <laughs> and they didn't want the, uh, the early church didn't want their attention divided. They wanted it solely focused on the ministry of the church. And so they actually forbade them after a while from taking jobs outside of the church. Uh, bivocational. Uh, I, I think I like the word, I, I need to come up with what the word would be, but almost like extra incomes centered. We live in a world that's really pretty amazing where you can kind of do what you do and you can do things on the side that are definitely profitable. Uh, one, uh, one church planning pastor I know, they Airbnb'd their house. Okay, so he was full-time, you know, full-time church planning pastor and they Airbnb'd their house, and they made like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year by Airbnb their house. Okay, that was a huge thing. I have another pastor friend of mine, uh, and she's in Michigan, and she drives Uber and Lyft on her, you know, she's got a smaller church, and she just looks at her schedule, and when it fits in, she just turns on the meter, so to speak, and she picks up some rides, and she's making an extra ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a year, but she's full-time with her church. Uh, when I was a senior pastor, uh, my 115-year-old church came to me, and they said, you know, Brian, we love you. We love what's going on in the church, and the church is growing, but you have more ideas than we can kind of process as quickly as you as you can come up with them. <laughs> so they said, can you, like, take some of your energy and do something with it and, and like, use your energy for, like, other God things? And so I started writing generosity materials. I mean, pamphlets and booklets and devotionals. And I just started creating these things like crazy and articles. And, and then people wanted them. And people were like paying me 50 bucks for like everything I ever created. And so literally that made like $20,000, $25,000 more a year just selling digital resources online through my websites. And, uh, and so, again, I was full-time pastor. I was not neglecting my flock, and yet I had this capacity and this energy to do something. So we live in a pretty cool world where you can do what you do, and you can do some things on the side that fit into your life uh, and, and make some extra income. Um, my church that I'm currently a elder at, we have a guy on staff. He's the video video communications production guy. And we pay him, but uh, he's doing weddings on the side. I think this year he's going to make $100,000 videotaping weddings. You know, uh, so yeah, we pay him something, but he's able to do something by vocation. Yes, it almost makes me wonder if, yes, the video, the wedding video thing is paying for his communication service. Yeah, but you do make a good point. Those, I, I think technically all those jobs you mentioned would be considered technically bivocational, but you're right. They're not bivocational in the sense of splitting one's passions uh, 50-50. So, and so you can have your full-time position, but you, 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 know, you, you look for ways that there's extra income. And, and again, in our, in our course that we have, we have a, this free online course, God is Your Provider, and we give people links to like 100 different ways to make money on the side. Yeah. And so it's not taking you away from your full-time work but it's this idea of what can you, what are your gifts, what are your abilities that you can do something five hours, 10 hours a week. Uh, I know some people that literally, uh, I just watched a video the other day, a guy makes money just uh, going to yard sales and then selling on eBay and Craigslist. 
and he's making an extra thirty, forty thousand a year doing weekend garage sales and and yard sales. And he's just he knows what's worth something, and he buys it for twenty, and he sells it for a hundred online. Yeah, and then uh, and then there are pastors who use their pastoral gifts in particular, uh, making themselves available for. Uh, funerals and weddings outside of their church, uh, because people need those type of pastoral services. And uh, it seems a little mercenary, but the fact of the matter is it does take a pastor time and energy in order to prepare those services, and he's the labor is worthy of his hire. So I've seen pastors do that as well. Yeah. yeah I had a retired pastor friend of mine. He, uh, we was in, he was in Colorado Springs at my church, and he worked uh, for the funeral home because 90% of people in Colorado, when they die, they have no church connection. So he would preach about 100 funerals, 120 funerals a year, and, you know, always had a great audience. He had one really, really good message, and he just gave it 120 times, yeah. uh, and that cared for him in his in his retirement years. Yeah, it can be a tremendous ministry in our culture where people do not have a church connection, and this is the first time they will have any church connection. So, yeah, I, I think Pastoral it's Pastoral work and the gig economy is yep. what it sounds like. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That, that's a good, there's a, there's a good line for it. All right. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. People have feedback. Go to Twitter and leave us a tweet at CT Podcasts. You can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we respond to listener feedback. Some of you may recall that we did a podcast last week about John Ellen Chow. He was the 26-year-old missionary that was killed by people who live on North Sentinel Island. And so last week, we had the leader of all nations join our show, and we asked her some questions about stuff that was going on there. I wanted to read to you an email that we had from Abram Vargas. He is a listener from India, and he had some feedback for us. He said, I, like many Christians in India, were deeply moved by the passion of John Chow to fulfill the Great Commission. His life and willingness to die for the cross encouraged me and motivated many of us who face daily persecution and work towards the same goal of reaching the unreached in South Asia. I appreciate Mr. Chow's love for the Lord. I also appreciate Dr. Ho's leadership of all nations and her sincerity to the gospel. I was deeply touched by what I heard. However, many of us were very sad at the lack of genuine evaluation by CT on the actions of Mr. Chow. I was also greatly saddened to hear the podcast and not find views from Indian missionary leaders or missiologists being presented. That would have brought in a better balance. I'm a missiologist trained in the USA and now serve our Lord in India. A large number of missiologists and missionary leaders in South Asia appreciate the courage of Chow. However, we strongly disagree that Mr. Chow's methods were useful or wise. And then he goes on from there. I don't know, Mark, do you want to summarize? Well, just, uh, I, we probably don't have time to go into it, but he makes some pointed, asks some pointed questions, raises some serious concerns about uh, the method of uh, evangelism that Mr. Chow was using, all of which need to be talked about and raised, especially with uh, people, uh, with Christians from India itself. So we're actually hoping to get into that at some point. We just didn't feel it was appropriate to be hypercritical the week after this young man's death, and it was enough to just note his courage, whether it was wise, whether he did the best thing he could have done in that situation. That's something that many journalists are still looking into and trying to unravel, and we at CT are hoping to do that as well, because it's, it's a pretty significant moment in the church's life and the mission's life, and we really do want to understand what happened, why it happened, what we can learn from it. So yeah. we really appreciate an email like this. I thought it was a great email, and I'm really glad that you emailed us. Abram, hopefully, too, I know that our news team is currently working on publishing something that does convey the Indian missiologist perspective, because that is something that we do care about and we want to be cognizant of. But thank you for sending us this email and reminding us of the fact. All right. Before we move to the next segment of the show, I want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who supports the ministry of Christianity Today. So, yes, we've been speaking about giving this whole time. I will give you an opportunity. If you felt convicted during that time, you can make good on it now and help all of us out. Amen. So, as everyone knows, Mark is our editor-in-chief, and as part of that, he also is kind of like the ambassador of our publication, which is why he went to New York this past weekend 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you did? So I was invited to speak at Central Presbyterian Church, a magnificent church structure, but also a magnificent church people. It was just a, a wonderful church service I went to there, but I spoke at their Sunday school class. Uh, and then uh, on Monday, that would be yesterday, I met with a couple gentlemen from a movement called Generosity New York, which is mobilizing Christians of capacity to be more generous with their, generous and wise with their giving. And then I met in the evening with a a woman who is very generously partnered with Christianity Today and just wanted to get to meet her and talk, talk to someone who felt committed to CT with such a generous gift. So that was, that's a, that was just a, a really encouraging trip in terms of speaking with her, speaking with these two gentlemen and the work they're doing. In fact, I thought there's a number of initiatives across the country that are encouraging Christians of capacity to be generous and wise in their giving. And I think that's probably worth a story for us at some point. That's really cool. All right. Whether or not you are considered a Christian of capacity. Financial capacity. We're all Christians of. We are. Charismatic capacity, meaning having gifts. Yes. Praying, among those other things. One of the things that the people that are wealthy understand, at least many of them understand, is that that, that comes to them as a gift and that they're responsible to steward it. And so it's it's a difficult thing to know how to steward that wisely and generously in in any given culture, but especially ours. And these ministries are helping them do that because most of these people, they really do want to give. I don't think they need to be prodded into giving. They just need to know where to do it, how to do it wisely. So I think it's a really encouraging set of movements. In a couple months from now, we will be talking about the article that we wrote, I'm sure, and get into that even more. All right. So if you want to give to us at Christianity Today, to this ministry, which I will also add There are quite a few of you out there who have given gifts that you've specifically said are for quick to listen. That is extremely appreciated, humbling, validating. Feels great. Thank you, everyone who supports us that way. You can give a gift by going to morect.com slash podcasts. That's morect.com slash podcasts. And thank you, everyone who gives. Truly, we really appreciate your support of quick to listen that way. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, when everyone gets a chance to share something that has brought them joy. I know that doesn't sound very joyful. I guess I need to, like, smile when I say this. I don't feel like smiling right now. I'm saying it. (laughs) All right, Mark. You can go first. Well, I was in New York City, uh, but when I had some free time, I went down to the Rockefeller Center, and it was... uh, I'd heard lots about it over the years, their Christmas display, and the Christmas display at Saks Fifth Avenue was absolutely gorgeous and wonderful. And I, I popped into uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, which, uh, which is right next door to Saks, or maybe I should say it the other way around. <laughs> but, and I bumped into a, a mass that was being celebrated on behalf of the patron virgin of Nicaragua. And it was just, uh, although the whole service was, I decided to sit for the service, and though the whole service was in Spanish, it was, I understood a great deal of the liturgy because of the context, but it was just a, really an amazing experience to watch these uh, Latino, literally Latino from Latin America, Christians celebrating uh, this festival and their life, and they had a little procession, and uh, the, the enthusiasm of the singing was quite remarkable. I thought it was very powerful, so. Isn't it kind of cool, too, that... In the middle of a big shopping area, there's just a church. Yeah. And it was, well, on that day, it was a, it was a Sunday night. So it was, uh, the whole, the streets were packed. I mean, it was one of those very typical, uh, stereotypical New York City scenes where you're just kind of crawling through people to get from one place to another. But the cathedral itself had uh, these huge, big men who were there, who were the ushers and mm-hmm. basically telling people, are you going to Mass? Okay, you can go here. But if you're not going to Mass, it was very clear you are not going to go in this certain area. (laughs) (laughs) Directing people, because people were there to look, and there were people there to worship. It was a very confusing setting, but quite dynamic, that would be the way to put it. All right. If people like the opinions you have, can they get them outside of this podcast? And if they don't like them and they want to get angry, you can uh, read. You can hate read. You can hate read. I published something called The Galley Report. Uh, you can find it at Christianity Today slash The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report, in which I uh, link to four or five articles a week. I make comment on them, sometimes humorous, sometimes pointed, sometimes thoughtful. And you can subscribe to that. I will also recommend 
reading Mark's newsletter, you will definitely not agree with everything in there because Mark enjoys having contrary and then contrary to the contrarian opinions. But he finds articles that I haven't seen in different places, and I try to read a lot. So if you like eclectic stuff, check out his newsletter. All right, Brian. So my joy this week, well, I uh, I did a quick trip with my wife into Chicago, downtown Chicago. Uh, my son, who's 22, uh, had one of the lead parts in Moody's uh, special Christmas Christmas carol play or something at Moody Church. So he got to perform in front of 7,000 people over three services. And he did a wonderful, wonderful job. Um, it was a German World War I play based on Silent Night when the, when the war stopped one night. Between the French and the German. Yeah, the French and the German, yeah. Uh, the, the war stopped, and he uh, and this one it was a Brit Brit and German, and my son played uh, this German young man and did a great job with his accent. But it was just great to see him thrive, and and he's just so gifted. Uh, and he he's these days he's into memorizing whole books of the Bible and whole chapters of the Bible and then performing them. So it's just really fun to see him uh, just excel in life and service. So that was really a huge blessing. Yeah, you got to be in Chicago during Christmas, which is nice. Yes. All right. Brian, do you have a website, social media? Where do you, where should people find you after this? Uh, I think a couple things I'm going to do. One, you know, we gave some bad news about giving in America. And I want to give people a way to reverse that. And what do you, what do you teach people? And I did write a little devotional, 40-day journey to a more generous life. And the really cool thing is it's uh, 400 scriptures, 40 biblical financial principles, been used by over 3,000 churches in America and in 50 languages overseas, but you can get it for free. So to get it for free, just go to an app store and put in Give With Joy, speaking of joy, uh, Give With Joy, one word, or go to givewithjoy.org and you can get it as an email, daily email. So like that would be the personal thing I would point you to. I mentioned the NAE Financial Health Initiative. We have free resources, free online courses for pastors and spouses and individuals, and then also for church boards, uh, all grant funded. It's naefinancialhealth.org, and people can go there online and get some great resources that really can help them uh, in their personal lives, but also in their church life and increasing the generosity of their congregation. All right. My precious moment this week is an event that I organized last night. So I've been leading this group about East Asian American identity since the beginning of September. So it's specifically looking at the experiences of people who are in Chicago who are of Chinese, Japanese, and Korean descent. And we've been doing a lot of storytelling and eating together. And when I was writing up the whole kind of syllabus for this for December 3rd, I put public event and that's all it said. So then we had to figure out what we're going to do for the public event. And we ended up doing an evening of storytelling and sharing where three people in our group who kind of are from each of those ethnicities came and shared their own experience of growing up in Chicago slash Chicagoland. And we had about 80 people that came. Wow. It was really cool. Also, I take pride in knowing a lot of people, and I did not know a lot of people who were at this event. So it was also kind of cool just to see how it had come up on people's radar, and I didn't even know who they were, and they had shown up. Yeah, it seemed like it really resonated, just like the level of personal storytelling and how vulnerable our storytellers were willing to be with just their own life experiences. And I felt just proud of them as my friends for being able to to share that with other people and to be so thoughtful and willing to talk about challenging things in in a public situation, in a public setting. So that was really cool to to witness. And also there was a lot of time and energy put into everything from anything. As you know, when you plan events, you have food and drinks and location. And logistically, I was really relieved that that all came together so well. That's one of Morgan's gifts, bringing people together. Thank you, Mark. It is definitely something I'm passionate about. All right. People can find me, and I, I did put some pictures up of the event on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by ChristianBook.com, a huge selection of Christian books, Bibles, gifts, music, and more, all in one place and always at great values. 
thechristianbook.com, everything Christian for less. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But again, wherever you get your podcasts, neither of those is where I get my podcasts. So we're on a diversity of platforms. However, if you want to support the show, please go to Apple Podcasts. That's where you can rate and review the show, help people find it. We truly appreciate all of you who have done that. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. The theme music is by Sweeps. You can give us feedback on Twitter, again, at CT Podcast, or send us an email at podcast at We will see you next week. Bye.